uh, where he said that what he was struggling with was trying to understand what it meant to believe without defining that word with some sort of version of the word believe. <laughs> and when you really get down to it, it becomes rather difficult. And so what I, want to do, uh, what I wanted to do last night and again this morning is to begin to sort of sweep away what I want to submit to you are bad ways in which we think about believing. Last night I tried to submit to you that it was not a good way to think about faith as if faith were some sort of power of positive thinking <laughs> that when we project it onto God, somehow he allows for good things to happen to us. No, faith is trust that what he ordains is right for me. Doesn't mean that I don't pray about him, doesn't mean that I don't interact with that good providence, but it does mean that I settle the issue first, that he's the one that calls the shots. This next message, uh, the next text that I want to take a look at in dealing with the issue of faith uh, opens up a new set of questions. And if, if I can, let me read the text first, and then I want to throw yet another you be the campus minister question at you and see, uh, see how you think. So if you brought your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I want to read verses, um, verses 27 through the end of the chapter there. You stay in Luke 17, or Luke 16, and I'm going to read very briefly uh, from Hebrews 11:3, and then go back to Luke. So you stay in Luke. I'm going to do something in Hebrews. Hebrews 11:3 says this: "By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible." OK. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus turns to tell a story about the rich man and Lazarus. You remember this parable, don't you? It's a very memorable parable, especially if you are looking into understanding the doctrine of eternal punishment, the doctrine of hell. And we find that this parable uh, it pictures a, a rich man and uh, a, a poor man. Uh, the rich man, I love the old King James translation of it, fared sumptuously every day and lives in luxury. Meanwhile, there's a beggar at his gates that the rich man, for whatever reason, fails to take notice of and lands himself in hell after his death. And of course, Lazarus, the poor man, is taken up to Abraham's side uh, for comfort. Of course, we know this to be uh, uh, not necessarily the literal character of Father Abraham, but, but, but the comfort of heaven. That's the idea there, that, that, that to be with God himself, with his ancestors, then passed. There's a brief discussion, though, between the rich man and Father Abraham about the inevitability of the situation in which they found themselves. Uh, the rich man is explained by Father Abraham that there is no going back and forth from one place to the other if he wants to cool his tongue from that fire. And by the way, he's still trying to order Lazarus around. Would you send him to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue? still wanting to have him as his servant. But after sort of getting it through his head that this situation is inevitable, then we get to what I think is the really mysterious part of this parable and what I kind of want to focus on today beginning in verse 27. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, 
let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word for us, at least for this morning. All right, let me ask you a question. And it's a question that I ask my freshman, incoming freshman, every single year. Every single year for the last 17 years, I have set this question in front of freshmen. I want you to go to that place in your mind that oftentimes we don't want to talk about because we're afraid of it. That place in your mind that sometimes wonders to yourself, is this really real? Are the things that I follow, the things that I believe, this, this invisible God that's out there, can I really count on that? And what assurances do I have that all of this time and all of this emotional and spiritual energy that I've invested in thinking about these things are really real? <clears throat> think about that for just a moment. If you've ever had that thought, if you've not had it late, lately, think about the time in which you used to. <laughs> But I want to ask you this question. What if I told you this morning that God himself had granted me very special powers? Very special powers to grant to you this morning before your very eyes anything that you want to see. But the condition is this. Having seen it, you would never ever doubt that God was there that you were secure in your relationship to him, and that you could trust every word that he told you in the scripture. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm here to demonstrate for you something that would wow you so much that for the rest of your life, there would never be a moment where you thought, I don't know if God is really there. I wonder what you would ask for. I love to ask college freshmen this because I get great answers. Most of them will look and say, well, you know what? I'd kind of like to see a miracle. Come on there, uh, preacher boy, show me something that uh, uh, you do, you know, kind of roll up your sleeves, you know, sort of pull back and, I don't know, zap something, cause someone to appear, maybe. Uh, maybe if you could uh, 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 find somebody that's sick that I know, that they would be healed. Um, other people will ask for, you know, sort of miraculous demonstrations. You know, well, Les, if you could like maybe levitate off the ground and float around the room or something. Um, what mostly, you know, they oftentimes will ask for, uh, is for a time machine. Isn't this an interesting thought? They want a time machine so that they can go back and be standing there when the resurrection happened so that they could watch it all. My, my favorite, most uh, funniest response I ever got was from a girl about six or seven years ago who said, I would like video of creation. Video. <laughs> she wanted a videotape of God create, creating the universe. And I thought, video, is that compelling for you? That that's all you want? It's, I thought someone could produce, look at Steven Spielberg to make a video. For all she knows, it could be the real thing, right? Um, what would you ask for that if you could see, you would never doubt ever again? And of course, I wait for the answers to come in. And as soon as the answers come in, then I ask them this question. Why won't God give that to you? 
Why won't God give that to you? If that's what you need to believe and never doubt, then why is God begrudging you that miracle? Have you ever asked that question? A number of years ago, I was sitting in a a restaurant. This is when I was at the University of Memphis and speaking with a young student who, you know, at the ripe old age of 19, fancied himself a bit of a philosopher. And uh, he he had started coming to RUF and he had had left the faith um, long before. Actually, sometime in high school, he had a a mentor who was a very uh, skeptical, uh, 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 unbelieving person and really drawn this young man away from the, the faith of his parents. And he was sitting across the, the restaurant from me, he started coming to RUF and was a very vocal unbeliever in Christ. But he still came to RUF for whatever reason, and he and I developed a little bit of a relationship. And I looked over at him and I said, Coop, I said, you know, you, you don't believe anymore, but you keep coming to RUF. Why do you keep coming around? I mean, it's, it's, we're always glad to have you. This is the place where we'd like for you to be. And he looked at me and he said, Les, it's because I really don't feel like I can get my question answered. And I said, question? I said, that sounds like a singular. He goes, yeah, it is. He said, I really only have one question for religious people. And I thought, okay, here it comes. And he said, I want to know why God is hiding. This is a 19-year-old college student. Why is God hiding? And of course, you know, I, I know well enough to think to myself, I don't know, but this sounds like a trick question. <clears throat> What do you mean, why is God hiding? And, his, and, his, and he responded to me by saying this. He said, if God wants for people to believe in him so badly, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why all the cloak and dagger? Why the invisibility? Why not show up, make yourself more obvious, and then people would very naturally, by the sheer compelling force of their own uh, evidence, Follow and believe in God. You be the campus minister. We should start a television game show, right? (laughs) To see how you would answer these questions from a 19-year-old person. I want to submit to you this morning that my friend is asking a question that relates to an issue that there is so much confusion about, especially among Christians. And that is, what is the relationship to my believing and my thinking. In other words, between faith and between reason. Because I love to tell Coop's story to my freshmen when they come in, and I'll look at them and I'll say, I want you to answer Coop's question that he asked me that day. How would you respond to a young man who said, why is God hiding? There is not one year in the last 12 that I've asked that question to my students where a Christian student did not raise their hand very confidently and say something along the lines of this. You may have said it to yourself while I was asking it. Someone will raise their hand and say, well, Les, if God made himself obvious, then we wouldn't have to have faith. Did you catch that? In other words, faith is what we call the point of Christianity. You just believe And if God made it easy for us, well, then everybody would believe, right? And so what faith is then, and I try to pull it out of them, is really this sort of mental leap into the dark, into something that very well may for them not make a bit of sense, 
that once you've sort of accepted it, then you suddenly are escorted into real believing faith. By the way, these are the same students, interestingly enough, who months later will have their world rocked when a professor comes in front of them and says, look, I want you to know that you can have your Christian belief. There is nowhere near the antagonism against Christianity in the college classroom like there was when I was in college 25 years ago. Today, it's great to be religious. If you want to be into Christianity, that's fine. But understand, in this classroom, we're going to deal with facts. If you want to be about like this crazy sort of leap into absurdity that we call faith, sure, you can do that. But in here, we're going to deal with truth. Now, you, as a Christian, you ought to be thinking, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and you know what? It's not. What I want to try to pitch to you this morning from the two scripture passages that we just read is answer two questions. Question number one is this. What is the relationship to my thinking and my believing? And number two, does that mean that I can think my way into heaven? Can I reason this out in my mind? How does that work between the two? And I realize that you're looking and thinking, wow, I got up on a Saturday morning to think about something this esoteric. Bear with me. I'm going to try to bring this home to you as best as I can. So what is the relationship then? How do I know what it means for me to be a thinking person and what it means to be a believing person? Where do those two things fit together? Well, in Hebrews 11, verse 3, I submit to you that you have the answer. Because the writer looks and says, by faith we understand. Now look, that's one of those verses that's actually, or words, that's worth underlining in your Bibles. If you're one of those writing in your Bible kinds of people, that's a good one to underline. Because what he's saying is, is the Greek word there that says understanding is the Greek word knowing. Does that sound familiar to you? What it does is it has to do with the mind. It has to do with reasoning. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying that by faith we conclude from evidence. And the order is everything. By faith, first, we understand, reach conclusions, sort of conclude from the evidence. In other words, our thinking is based upon our believing. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take very long to think that our world reverses those two, do they not? What is believing in this mind, generation's mind? Seeing is believing. The proof is in the pudding, Les, <laughs> and it's then also in the tasting. In other words, the idea, and most scientists are the ones that sort of deal in this world. We have an image in the early 21st century that scientists are these complete empty slates. They're blank slated people who sort of walk out with nothing more than the sheer power of their curiosity. And they go out into the world to gather facts. They, they study a phenomenon over here, and then they study a phenomenon over there. And then eventually, over time, the more that they just look into these things, there will emerge from these things truths that they can bank on. Does that make sense? In other words, once I observe, then I can draw conclusions and beliefs from them. 
That's what most scientists think. That's what most students are taught when they, are, um, when they come to the college classroom. That only the scientist is the real objective person. Now, your students are being told that, but there are more and more people that are all of a sudden looking and going, I'm not so sure that's actually the way that it works. Back in the 1960s, there was an author by the name of Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, who wrote a book that made a lot of scientists very, very upset. Because Thomas Kuhn suggests, he said, you know what? I actually don't think that's the way in which people are doing it. He goes, if you really look at what happened when you have what we might call scientific revolutions, what happened was, was scientists sort of came to a series of... Um, uh, observations with a certain idea, a way of understanding that he thought, you know, I wonder if the world doesn't work this way. And then he went and tested that premise to see if it fit in with this great idea. And if it did, he looked and realized he had come to a conclusion. In other words, what Kuhn said was, no, actually, I think that people start believing and then they go to the evidence and see if it doesn't fit in with the way in which they're believing. And the writer of the book of Hebrews looks and says, exactly. And we all do it this way. Look, what the Bible is saying, and what I simply want you to sort of grasp this morning, is that a Christian is one not who looks and says, well, you know, the more absurd Christianity is, the better, because I'm going to take this leap into the dark and then I'm just going to believe it, I'm going to assent to its truthfulness, and then that's what makes it true for me. True for me. Isn't that a funny way to say that? <laughs> if it's true for you, that's called your opinion, and that's not what we call truth. Truth is true for everybody if it's truth. But yet this is the way the students oftentimes taught. The Christian is one who has looked and said, look, non-Christian, <laughs> when I start with the idea, no God, I can't make the world make sense with that. Because if there is no God, there is no truth above my opinion. And if there is no truth that is above my opinion, then how can I say that anything is right or wrong? This is really fun to sort of catch a student in. Because students will sort of get a full breath of relativism and pluralism when they come into college and they go back to their parents and they're like, oh, you raised me on this silly Christianity stuff and now I've been to college and I realize that there's sincere people who believe entirely different things than I do. And you just sort of choked that down into me. Now I've looked and realized that there is no one truth. Now that's a great moment to catch your college student in because you want to say, really? <laughs> All you got to do is wait for them to get upset about something. Even something as simple, I love driving around. Sometimes I'll take students when we go to eat lunch. We'll, I'll load them up in my car or I'll call them and say, hey, come pick me up by my office and we'll go grab something to eat. I love it when a student will sort of get cut off in traffic by another person and they're like, oh, you know, honk, maybe they'll honk their horn or something. Can't believe that guy. How rude. Oh, so you're saying that they should not have cut you off in traffic. Is that right? So, you, so they ought, in other words, people ought to respect you when you're driving, right? Well, by what standard do you look at them and tell them that they ought do one thing or the, or the, or the other? 
Well, because it limits my freedom. Oh, so all we're going to do is live by limiting people's freedom? Is that the new rule of life? Because there are a group of people about 70 or 80 years ago who decided that it would be their, uh, uh, that they were, that, that Jewish people were limiting their freedom. And they decided to set about to the, uh, the eventual extermination of Jewish people that we call the Holocaust. Some people fought World War II over it. Perhaps you've heard of it. <laughs> In other words, if you say, if you begin with the premise that there is no God, where do you find a foundation for having rules at all? And if there are no rules at all, then anything goes. And objecting to anything leads you to absurdity. This is the reason why C.S. Lewis began his book, Mere Christianity, with the simple question, have you ever gotten into a quarrel? Because when you get into a quarrel with someone, don't you assume that your opinion is right and their opinion is wrong? And does that not hint at the fact that there really is truth in the universe and God has contained it? God has expressed it in his word. For us, I simply want to throw this out at you. The life of faith is a life of thinking it through. There is no conflict in the Christian faith between your thinking and your believing. As a matter of fact, God looks and says, I want you to begin with the premise of me. And you tell me if life does not make sense as it extends from that. The fool has said in his heart, the psalmist says, that there is no God. Begin with that premise and the world simply will not make sense to you. Now, at this point, I have a student who usually is fairly adept who looks and says, wait a minute, Les, what about 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul looks and says that for we walk by faith and not by sight? Doesn't that therefore mean that Christians are these people who sort of walk through life like this? Like, no, I know people disagree with me, but I just don't want to see them. (laughs) I don't want to think about those people disagreeing with me, right? That's not what Paul means there. What Paul is saying is, when we walk by faith and not by sight, it means that we walk by the truth that we know we can count on. Let's say, for instance, that, um, that I go to a doctor. I go to Michael Hogue because he's a faithful, helpful doctor for me. And Michael comes in with a series of tests. And he looks and says, Les, I'm, look, I'm showing you that uh, the results show that you have diabetes. Okay? You have diabetes, and you're, you're going to struggle from it. Here, these are the things that the symptoms say, and he shows me all the charts. And I leave his office believing in his authority because he showed me the facts. He, is, he has appealed to my reason on that basis. But then all of a sudden, I come into the presence of Shipley's Donuts, <laughs> right? I can see them, you know, they have, the, they have the lightest, thinnest glaze around the top. And, you know, they don't overwhelm you with sweetness, they're just perfectly glazed, aren't they? And it's sitting there, and all of a sudden I can feel my mouth water. And Paul is looking at me and he's saying, Les, walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, you came to understand and be convinced that Michael was a legitimate authority. Walk by that faith, not by what you see in front of you. Your thinking is not opposed to your believing, Christian. Please do not assume that you had to check your brain at the door before you came to Christ. That'd be a false way to look at it. That's my first question. Let me finish with this second quick question as well. Because then then my student looks up and says, okay, so what you're saying is, Les, is there is an objective, absolute proof for the existence of God. 
so give it to me. What is it, right? And a lot of times that's when students begin to wish that I would pull out my Steven Spielberg special effects for them and do my magic trick that they're always asking for. You know, Les, are you going to do that trick, you know, that you said that you would do, that if it happened to me, I would never, ever doubt that God was real ever again? Are you going to pull that off? Well, I wonder if the story in Luke chapter 16 doesn't throw you off a bit, if that's the way you think about it. Because here you have this um, Lazarus in comfort in heaven, and you have this rich man in the torments of hell, and he knows that he's stuck there, he knows that he can't get out of it, but he looks and for whatever reason doesn't want his five brothers to come into the same situation. Okay? He wants his five brothers to sort of be convinced, that's the key word, that they ought not to make the same choices that he made in life. Right? And Father Abraham says the most curious thing. He says, well, what are you worried about your five brothers for? They have what? Moses and the prophets. Now think like a New Testament person for, for a moment. If you were living in the New Testament, the only Bible that you had was the Old Testament. Does that make sense? And oftentimes Jewish people would refer to that as Moses and the prophets. So what Father Abraham is saying to the rich man is fascinating. He says, well, don't worry about your brothers. They have the Bible. Now I love when I'm talking to my freshmen to throw that one at them. I'm like, hey, Father Abraham just said that what you really need is the Bible. So hey, forget the levitation around the room thing that I was going to do. Um, let's just read the Bible. And you can see that the looks on their faces are just as disappointed as your looks are right now. <laughs> I thought he was going to levitate. I kind of wanted to see that, right? <laughs> the Bible? That's somehow going to be compelling to me? Just the Bible? So, so the rich man decides that he's going to correct Father Abraham. Never a good idea. And so he says... <clears throat> No, Father Abraham, you don't understand how it works among the land of the living. We need something spectacular. We need something kind of cool. And you know what? If that Lazarus guy actually rose from the dead, now that might really wow people. I mean, I mean, good gracious, if they could hear somebody come back from the dead, I mean, that would really blow them away, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And what does Father Abraham say? He looks and says, you know what, <clears throat> if people don't listen to the Bible, they're not going to be convinced, even if somebody rises from the dead. Okay, now think about who it is that tell, that's telling this story. This is Jesus' story. <laughs> who do you think he's talking about when he's talking about someone rising from the dead? He's talking about himself. Jesus looks and goes, hey, guess what? I'm going to rise from the dead. And you know what's crazy? People still aren't going to believe. Now, how do, you, how do you make sense of that as a Christian person? I dare say that for many of you, you've been witnessing to family members, co-workers, and neighbors for years. And you have brought to bear in their lives things that you think are absolutely compelling. And yet they will not repent. They will not believe. What in the world is going on in the mind of someone who is disbelieving in the face of incontrovertible facts? Well, you know what the Bible actually tells us. And it brings me right back to Coop's question. 
Because Coop is looking at me and saying, Les, why is it that God is hiding? Why is it that he won't just show himself? And of course, in the midst of our lunch, I looked at Coop and I said, well, you know what's funny, Coop? <laughs> he did show himself. He actually did show up. And you know what? People didn't believe him. They still didn't believe him. They still didn't acknowledge that he was God. And he looked at me and said, well, why do you think that's the case? And I said, now that's a good question. Because the Bible actually looks in places like Psalm 19. You remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God, and nature shows forth His handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night after night reveals knowledge, so that there is no place on under heaven and earth where His voice is not heard. As a matter of fact, God isn't hiding at all, He says. As a matter of fact, this is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings. And round me rings the music of the spheres. Hasn't that always been a Christian's confession? In other words, once I saw him, I realized he was everywhere. So why don't they see it? Well, then you got to go to Romans chapter 1 to get a little explanation of this. Because Paul looks and explains the fact that the wrath of God is coming against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. In other words, there is truth that they know to be true. They just don't want to admit it. For, he says, what may be known of God is plain to them. I love the NIV translation of that one. It's plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. For since the beginning of the world, His invisible attributes have been clearly seen, even His eternal power and divine nature. Look, <clears throat> This is what it comes down to. God is, in fact, not hiding. And if what the Apostle Paul says is true, you're the one that's hiding. Look, what the Bible is suggesting is that mankind in his natural, unredeemed state is born with an anti-God bias. We talk a lot about bias in the media you watch a television show and you're like, oh my goodness, that could not be any more blatantly political what you just said. You're biased. You brought your opinions in before you looked at the facts. And Paul looks and says the natural man does it every single day. He looks at the facts and it is his anti-God premise that twists those facts into reasoning that would actually exclude God and they make themselves a fool. In other words, the truth is, people, people don't disbelieve for lack of evidence. They disbelieve because of an overabundance of evidence. Because they know that if that evidence is true, then God is asking something from them and has the right to ask from them for their entire lives. And the truth of the matter is, we, we don't want to give it. The truth of the matter is, is in my natural mind, I have decided that I am going to be the one in charge. I will not acknowledge his authority in my life because I want to be the one who says what I do. In other words, we have started with a premise of no God and we have extended it out into disbelief. Look, y'all, there is a complicated relationship between our believing and our thinking. Our thinking is based upon our believing in a fascinating way. But because that's the case, 
The natural mind doesn't hear anything, and there's only one thing that can crack through it. And it's Moses and the prophets. So in some senses, and this is what I'll finish with this one thought, you with your Bible open in your lap this morning are in a very dangerous place. Because opening up God's Word itself to read from Moses and the prophets is itself to invite God in to come and rattle through all of my disbelief. There is no more radical place than you could be than sitting on a pew on Sunday mornings with a Bible opening in, opened in front of you and Bill or Andy exegeting the scriptures for you. In some senses, I would say from a spiritual perspective, you got to be crazy. Because God's going to come in and renovate just about every area of your life and is not going to stop until he deals with every area of your life. And that ought to be the most encouraging thing you ever heard and also the most terrifying thing you ever heard. Because on the one hand, it's a love that will not let me go. And on the other hand, it's a love that will not let me go, even when I wish that he would. Look, y'all, your thinking and your feeling are so closely united that God can say things like this in Romans chapter 10. And I'll finish with this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Hear the question? How can someone call on them if they have not believed him? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now listen to Romans 10, 17. You never understood this passage until this morning, right? Right? <laughs> so... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You want to grow in faith? You start right here. We've got to be committed to that. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, will you assist us in, in thinking it through, in thinking through your truth, in thinking through your word? Lord Jesus, would you give us um, the ability to power through what is even remaining as remaining sin in our lives, the, the resistance that even oftentimes we have to really wonder, are you really there? And we realize it's because we are still sick with our own anti-God bias that seems to cling to our new nature with so much tenacity. So perhaps this morning, though, because we chose to come in on a Saturday morning and consider your word, maybe we might have worked through some of that that bias even more, that you would have cleared it up, that you would have given us the clarity of knowing that you are the one who is the only authority in life. And so, Father, would you encourage us with these words and help us to dig deeper into your scriptures to long for it even more. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Bill.